Welcome everybody at the Middle East Institute National University of Singapore webinar, Protecting China Interests Overseas. We are looking today to discuss with two uh, distinguished guests, uh, Raffaello Pantucci and Andrea Giselli, about uh, China security and protection overseas from a wide range uh, of threat from the Middle East to Central Asia. Today, uh, we are looking to an open discussion. Uh, after a brief presentation of Andrea and Raffaello, uh, we will give uh, the floor open to question. Feel free to send me via chat uh, your question, or if you prefer, you can just unmute yourself and ask directly the question. Uh, I'm very excited because today we are presenting uh, Professor Andrea Ghiselli's book. He just published the book, uh, Protecting China Interest Overseas, Securitization and Foreign Policy. And we are going to discuss how to, the new challenge that China is facing in managing non-traditional security issues across a wide landscape. And of course, China, what is going to be China's strategic approach in defending its interests overseas. Uh, you can look uh, at the bio of uh, the two presenters today. I will just introduce briefly them. Dr. Andrea Ghiselli is a professor at the School of International Relations and Public Affairs in Fudan University. He is also head of the research in the China Med Project, a project that looks at China in the Mediterranean region, sponsored by the University of Torino. Raffaello Pantucci he is a senior fellow here in Singapore at the Rajaratnam School of International Study, better known as RSIS. He's also senior fellow at Royal United Service Institute in the United Kingdom. Raffaello uh, published extensively on terrorism threat and counterterrorism. He traveled uh, basically all Central Asia and from London to Shanghai, previously he's been in all the major think tank. So now without further ado, let's start uh, the webinar. I have uh, uh, an open question for uh, both our presenter today. I know, Andrea, that uh, you don't judge a book by its cover, but in the cover of your book, uh, if I recall correct, uh, uh, there is the first China uh, overseas military base in uh, Djibouti. Uh, I was there in 2019, but now with COVID, it looked like 30 years ago. Uh, having said that, uh, I am going straight forward to ask you, what are the implications for this base for China's policy security strategic approach with the focus of the, on the area that our institute is looking at, Middle East and North Africa? Floor is yours, Andrea. So first of all, thanks uh, a lot to Alessandro for the very kind introduction and, to, and thanks, of course, to the Middle East Institute of NUS for hosting today's talk. I've been looking forward to discussing this topic and of course learning from both Alessandro that is way too modest to say that he also published a lot on similar issues as well as Raffaello so I think it's going to be a very fun and fruitful discussion today. So going to the to the base in Djibouti. The base in Djibouti I see it as the most important and visible um, and significant product of a difficult a long process that took place uh, within Chinese foreign, uh, uh, so foreign policy and security policy elites. Uh, about, about think of 
what are the instruments, what are the tools of statecraft that we want to use to protect our own interest overseas. Interest uh, that, although at the very beginning of this process of this debate in the early 2000s, were defined a very broadly, very broad way, uh, now they are very clearly defined usually as uh, the assets of Chinese companies and especially the life of Chinese nationals abroad. So it was, again, it was a, it was a long process, mostly crisis driven, as I show in the book, uh, the base, uh, the evacuation of about 36,000 36, Chinese nationals in 2011 from Libya was the key turning point in this story. And these also were uh, the roots of the base in Djibouti should can be found. And this because um, because of two reasons. The first one is uh, at the in the policy at the policy debate level, that's really what triggered um, the, the so that really cemented the consensus that the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, must play a role in protecting Chinese interests overseas. And the most important, at least the most important of the evidence that I found for that is this article published in 2013 penned by Zhao Kishir, who back then was the leader of the logistic department of the PLA and one of the members of the Central Military Commission saying, we need bases abroad because our interests are global. So, you know, when someone like Zhao writes something like this, it means that the discussion is over and that the policy machine is, is, is put into action. And indeed it was already, in, you know, moving in that direction with uh, uh, the decision made by Chinese government to send the first military attaché to Djibouti in 2012, following discussions held during the FOCAC meeting uh, in 2012. Um, and so Djibouti was already one of the most likely candidates for the first base, uh, first Chinese base overseas. Was not the only one, was so potential other options in Saudi Arabia, Oman, and Yemen, and so on. Uh, but over time, all the other potential candidates uh, became less, uh, you know, uh, different factors kind of uh, make them drop from the list. Uh, for example, the war in Yemen uh, that influenced, of course, the viability of our base in Yemen or Oman. Um, also, an option in Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, it, it was very difficult to think about in, 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 re in realistic terms because of the relation between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And so Djibouti, you know, was a very safe place diplomatically because many countries have bases there, including surprisingly Italy. Uh, so not really a, that uh, major power. So it, it's, it's quite a crowded place. Um, also well, Djibouti, the port of Djibouti was the base that the PLA Navy was most familiar with and it got and uh, become most familiar with since, nine, uh, since 2008. Uh, uh, through uh, the anti-piracy uh, missions in the Gulf of Aden. And so I, I guess, you know, it, I think it was a very clear decision that of uh, selecting Djibouti for the first base overseas. And in 2015, indeed, after many uh, inside and outside have been speculating about it, uh, the base, the negotiation were, were made public and the base was then opened in 2017. So, this is kind of the background of that. So the, the base in Djibouti is really is the most important product of a process that took a long time and also different crises over time uh, to take place in order to uh, be completed. What are the implications? Honestly, 
it's still difficult to tell because uh, the base is is, uh, is smaller than the American one, of course. Uh, but it's quite clear, you know, now that this there is a long and deep pier that is being completed, um, the base can ho cannot host uh, fighter jets or long range military cargoes, but can host helicopters and so forth and so on. Um, so the base can be an important platform uh, for uh, Chinese power projection in the region. Uh, but until you know nothing comes out of the base, uh, you know, aside from uh, contingents that go out for training, it's still very difficult to understand what is the real meaning of the base in Djibouti. But it's definitely we can interpret it as China's uh, decision to create for itself a, a potentially a potential military option in case of emergency. And emergency, I'm not talking about conflict with another country in the region or conflict with the United States, uh, situation in which I think that base would be pr pretty much useless, but as a useful uh, platform uh, for eventual uh, extreme you know, uh, operations in case of emergency to free Chinese national being kidnapped or similar situations or from which coordinate evacuations from other countries. Um, so it can be an important uh, factor in shaping the future of Chinese presence in the region, but I think that is still, uh, we still have to uh, wait and see for the moment. Thank you, Andrea. And uh, also talking about book cover, now I'm looking uh, at Raffaello, uh, if I'm correct, uh, uh, you are finalizing your uh, coming book on China in Central Asia, and we are looking forward to see in, in, in print. Uh, the question is, are you going to put a Chinese military base uh, on the cover? And uh, are there Chinese military base in Central Asia? Uh, we have been discussing a lot in our recent uh, webinars uh, with uh, several Chinese uh, academicians, and they were all adamant to the fact uh, that China interest uh, in the Middle East uh, is minor in comparison to the one to the near abroad. But when we look at Central Asia, that's the near abroad. So, Raffaello, I just give to you the floor to see what are the direction of the Chinese security involvement uh, in the region. Thank you. Well, first, let me add my note of thanks to Alessandro for the kind invitation to MEI for hosting the webinar and to Andrea producing a book, which I look forward to reading, but gives us the opportunity to have an online discussion like this, which I, I greatly appreciate. So. Thank you uh, once again. I think, look, to, to, to switch straight to your question, Alessandro, I, um, we haven't decided with the publisher yet whether we're going to put the uh, Tajik base on the cover. I, I think we're probably not because there aren't many pictures of it, to be honest, um, and certainly not the sort of exciting pictures that we have on Andrea's book showing large deployments of soldiers marching around in sort of formation. Um, I think the, the base in Tajikistan is in many ways, I think, a natural extension of China's preoccupations of what security concerns might emanate from Afghanistan in particular. And I think that's kind of the starting point. And the base that exists in Tajikistan is up on the border uh, that they share, you know, on the kind of the Tajik side of the Wahan corridor. So to those aren't savvy of sort of geography, you know, Afghanistan has got this little hook uh, that extends out from the end of it that reaches out and touches China. And there's about a 75 kilometer border between China and Afghanistan directly. And then this corridor, which is called the Wakhan Corridor, is on the one side bordered by Tajikistan to the north, 
and to the south by Pakistan and Gilgit-Baltistan in particular. Um, and then this corridor sort of gives a direct connection between the two. And, you know, historically, this was a, a buffer region that the uh, British and Russian empires sort of created to give themselves some space uh, between each other. But we're talking a, a long time ago, of course. Um, but so what this has meant is that China has always had this connection directly with Afghanistan. And while historically problems and violence and instability from Afghanistan have not come into China directly, and it's quite easy in some ways for the Chinese to protect themselves because it's only a 70 kilometer border and you know that's quite small and so they can put up a base there and block things off on their side. Their concern was always, well, is the border as secure to the northward Tajikistan and to the south of Pakistan? Now with Pakistan, they've got a very strong historical relationship, goes back a long way. They've, got a, they've been spending a lot of money on helping the Pakistanis. There's specifically even a lot of kit to the Gilgit-Baltistani forces to help strengthen their side of the border. And so the relationship there and the army, frankly, the Pakistani army that's there is generally seen as a you know, relatively reliable partner for the Chinese who will worry about their concerns and will protect them from the sort of threats that might spill through. The concern with Tajikistan is Tajikistan, frankly, is a country that has got maybe a, a slightly less capable army. It's not an incapable army. And I think we've just seen in recent clashes on their border with Kyrgyzstan that actually the Tajik army is quite, you know, is quite effective when it, it wants to be. Um, but there was a concern about whether the Tajiks were really able to protect that border entirely. And there was a sense from a Chinese perspective that, you know, if we're going to guarantee that this, that we do have protection there, well, we're going to have to invest in this a little bit. Historically, the Russians have been kind of the ones who've spent more on this border, building it up. There was a, a parachute de deployment uh, unit that was based, the 201st, I think, that was based out of a base in Tajikistan that was kind of responsible for helping the Tajik strengthen that border. But I think as the Chinese have sort of increased their interest and their presence, and frankly, their influence globally, there's been a sense, well, actually, we should have, you know, we need to guarantee this ourselves. We can't rely on the Tajiks. We can't rely on the Russians. We need to have some sort of a forward presence ourselves. And the forward presence they established was a people's armed police base that was established in uh, the sort of Badakhshan region of Tajikistan that was along that border. They also spent a lot of money on helping the Tajiks build up their own border posts. I think it's about 12 or 14 border posts the Chinese helped fund. They've given some money, they've given some equipment to the Tajik force as well to strengthen their capability. And they've even helped the Afghans. Um, and this one's a lot harder to get information on, but there's you know, they have helped establish a base in Badakhshan and the Afghan part of Badakhshan to help the Afghan army have a kind of secure place there where for some time there were some Chinese forces doing joint patrols um, and they've given some support. But basically the, the concerns here are really quite simple and it is about helping ensure protection of China directly. And I think the choice of deploying the People's Armed Police is a very conscious one. The PAP is an army which is fundamentally a domestic force, but a domestic force which has kind of international capabilities and is essentially about dealing with counterterrorism problems. It's about dealing with threats kind of to national stability and security. And so, you know, for, from a Chinese perspective, what they're worried about is less, you know, concerns of, you know, large Taliban armies mobilizing and then sweeping across Tajikistan and then sweeping into China, which is frankly a pretty rare uh, pretty unlikely set of events to happen. I mean, the, the Taliban is, is fundamentally a Pashtun force that really sees itself as more interested in Afghanistan than it does, frankly, in, in neighboring countries. You know, maybe they'd be interested in, in, in expansionism into Pakistan, but historically we've seen very little evidence of expansionism from the Taliban North. 
But there has always been a concern from a Chinese perspective of Afghanistan acting as a kind of a host uh, base where Uyghur militants in particular could gather, plot, and try to launch attacks against China directly. And so from a Chinese perspective, the concern is, well, we need to have a bit more forward presence to help ensure our kind of direct protection of our borders there. And so I think that's the kind of context that we see within this kind of Chinese base deployment in Tajikistan. Um, and I think the honest truth is it hasn't done a huge amount, I don't think. I think that this base has basically been a place for them to have a kind of some eyes and ears on the ground and some ability, I think, to help strengthen and ensure that the Tajiks and the Afghans in turn are worrying about the things that the Chinese are worried about and are actually doing it. Their concern, I think, otherwise is they spend money on these guys and they don't do what they really need them to do. And then maybe something slips through and then they have some sort of problems. And in some ways, I remember having some discussions with um, um, some Chinese uh, interlocutors who were sort of looking at, you know, Chinese security in Afghanistan in particular. And uh, the interesting analogy they gave me, which uh, kind of fit in a way, was the analogy they used was a uh, deployment that was done by the MPS uh, down in the Mekong Delta. And you may remember back in 2011, 2012, there was a group of Chinese sailors who were kidnapped by local drug smugglers and murdered. Um, and this led to a sort of great deal of anger in the Chinese, from the Chinese side and a push to try to push into the Mekong to try to punish and capture these people. They did capture them, they brought them home, they tried them and I think they were executed. Um, but I think after that, you saw a great desire by the Chinese to try to increase their linkages and connectivity and presence in the kind of Mekong region to help ensure that this didn't happen again. And so what they did was they started doing joint training exercises. They do joint missions and they even, I think, established some sort of basings. And the analogy was given to me by some Chinese counterparts who said, you know, basically what you're seeing in Tajikistan is kind of a local version of what we did previously in the Mekong Delta which is essentially an extension of domestic security concerns and having a kind of presence in the neighboring country to help ensure you can kind of guarantee them. And so I think from that perspective, it really is more about China worrying about protecting its own borders and just pushing out where it's got that footprint a little bit further than uh, what, it, uh, what it might have had before, which would be sort of security stops right at your border. Here they say, okay, well, yes, security stops at our border, but if we're going to really guarantee it, we're going to have to push out a little bit. And I think partially that's to make sure they have their eyes and ears on it. Um, it's also, I think, to some degree, a, a vote of no confidence in the neighboring partners' capabilities, frankly, because you know, if the neighboring partners were able to guarantee these better, they probably wouldn't need to do that. So I'll maybe stop there, but I'd be happy to um, expand further. Definitely. I, I would like already to, to open the floor to the question, and I invite all our guests uh, to take this opportunity. Uh, to engage uh, in a conversation with Rafael Andrea. Uh, I would just start uh, to ask a personal question. Uh, in our previous webinar, we have been uh, looking at how the United States uh, and the overall Middle East uh, security architecture is uh, transitioning and transforming. Since Obama administration and with an acceleration during Trump administration, the US uh, is looking more at East than at the Middle East. And in this respect, uh, is there a chance for China to fill some of the vacuum that uh, uh, the United States has left? And as Raffaello mentioned for Central Asia, there is also a new player that uh, it's Russia that is getting more and more in, uh, in involved into the Middle East security affairs. Andrea, the floor is yours. It's a, it's a great question. Uh, thanks for asking it. It's a... Uh... My personal opinion uh, is that 
uh, rightly exactly because of these growing tensions between the, China and the United States in Asia, um, there is less, even less appetite than exists in the past for uh, adventures outside. Um, so when it comes to um, uh, you know the pivot to Asia of the United States and and what could happen in the Middle East and and China's potential role in that, I think there are uh, these event, this development is seen uh, both with concern as well as with some sort of satisfaction. Satisfaction in the sense that for a long time, Chinese analysts have identified uh, what they call Western NATO or American interventionism as one of the main sources of instability in the region. So a uh, decrease of that is seen definitely as a positive development. But at the same time, there are also a lot of concerns about you know, who is going to fill that vacuum? Because at least if, according to the open sources that are available, it seems quite clear that China does not want to fill that vacuum. Wants, of course, to help to coordinate, but does not want to lead it. And so, and especially with the growing activism on the side of certain regional actors, such as Turkey or Saudi Arabia or Israel, um, there's been growing concern in China about what happens if, you know, the the constraints set by the United States in, in the Middle East are taken away. Uh, the risk is not that we'll be, we'll, there will be more peace, but actually it could be in more even more instability than it used to be uh, before. So um, I, they, I, definitely there is, this corridor, uh, there, are, there is this concern about what comes next. And Russia is seen as an important partner uh, or important player, but say important player in this context. Uh, the Chinese admire, for example, how Russia managed to uh, pull off uh, its intervention in Syria uh, for using its military force in a very accurate and strategic way with few clear, simple goals to achieve, uh, despite the tensions in Ukraine and, and of course an economy that is not booming. Uh, but at the same time, there is awareness of the fact that Russia does not have neither the political willingness nor the resources to really rebuild after things have been destroyed, also by its bombers. And so that create, that's of course creates, uh, you know, that's another source of, 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 of concern because uh, China, of course, the, the strength of Chinese diplomacy in the region is its economic power, uh, but you know, economic problems at home uh, that of course uh, decrease the, the cash, the amount of cash that is available for investments abroad and the obvious risks that exist in investing in places like Syria, Libya, and so far and so on. China does not want to take it all for itself. Uh, definitely would prefer a kind of more coordinated Middle East uh, with less tensions among regional powers, uh, less intervention from the outside. But exactly how to bring that scenario uh, about, it's, it's, it's very difficult to tell. And I do think Chinese policymakers are still thinking uh, about that. Um, so yeah, this would be my, my answer to this terrific question. Oh, I see that um, I have a question for Rafaelo, but there is a, a hand raised, uh, and I will just invite uh, Sonavane to unmute, unmute, and then ask directly the question. Uh, hi, my question here is for Rafaelo. Um, I was wondering, do you think Beijing's border fortification is just for security purposes, uh, given China's ongoing expansionist tactics? And... Um, Secondly, do you think the Uyghur Muslim factor play any role in China's 
actions in Afghanistan? Because if I'm not wrong, there were very recent reports of Chinese spies being caught in Afghanistan. So do you think they have a counter-terrorism threat there? Um, sure, I'll jump in and answer that straight away, Alessandro. Um, so I think uh, two really interesting questions. Um, also, I I'd actually might add some brief comments on the earlier question, if that's okay, Alessandro, as well. But I think, I, look, I think the, the, um, uh, the base in, in Tajikistan I don't believe it's part of a kind of effort by the Chinese to have a kind of a expansionist view of taking over uh, Central Asia. I think that I think it is it is kind of what it says on the tin, which is a base to give them some eyes and ears on the ground. Um, I'm I, others. I, I know have a different view of this, but my view of China is not in a way that it's expansionist in the way of wanting to take over all the regions next to it. I think it wants to be very secure in its own territory and kind of ensure the rejuvenation of its strength and power. And it wants everyone around it to be its friends and to help it in that goal, you know, or at least to not get in the way of that kind of goal. And I think that's where they're focused. I'm a lesser believer of China as a kind of power that's saying, okay, it's our turn to start invading neighboring countries and doing all these sorts of things. Um, I'm just not, I just don't necessarily see that um, because I don't know that I see the appetite from their perspective to do that. I think where you could argue there is a kind of a different, where, difference in this movie if you look at the sort of South China Seas or if you look at some of the disputed borders that China has with countries like um, India where you know the, the dilemma there is I think from a Chinese perspective they would say they're not being expansionist because rather than you know they're not moving into territory that's not theirs they believe the territory is theirs so it's just sort of claiming what was already theirs it's just the other people on the other side didn't believe it was theirs and they're just sort of reaffirming it. and you know I accept that from the other side it looks like expansionism but I think in their interpretation it isn't so that's my view is I think they see kind of China as the country as it's shaped at the moment is what it should be and then everything else should kind of be basically looking up to it and supporting them and that's kind of how they I think see the world shaped so I'm less inclined to think that it's a kind of expansionist effort I do think however that what you'll end up seeing as always happens with these kinds of bases is that their uses multiply you know, and so what may have started as a kind of very basic, you know, let's help the Tajiks build up their capabilities become, you know, a bigger base that then can be used to do forward deployments or efforts that maybe stretch into other areas that weren't initially planned for. And is that expansionism or is that, you know, just kind of evolution of a tool that you've got? I would interpret it more in that way than the kind of expansionist way. Um, and then to your question about Afghanistan, which is, uh, is a very interesting one and one I've done a lot of work on is, I mean, there is, uh, you know, there is a, a neuralgic fixation uh, in Beijing about Uyghur militants, you know, around the world. And this has just become a fixation, an obsession of sorts. And you can see that they have really pushed out and you can see the pressure they put on Central Asian governments uh, to kind of repatriate Uyghurs that they're concerned about. Um, you, they, they've been doing this for some time and they continue to. Um, and Afghanistan is a place they've been very worried about this and they continue to be. Um, I would say to some degree this concern might be a little over inflated frankly because yes there are there is evidence that there are some Uyghur militants there but you know the numbers I've seen are very low reported you know and uh, if we look at you know the amount of times that we've seen any uh, incidents terrorist plots directed from these groups in Afghanistan I mean you can count them frankly on one hand and I'm talking going back 20 years now you know so it's a very limited kind of thing but the Chinese are very worried about it and there is a great deal of effort that goes into it and the 
the thing you were talking about in December was a, a spy network that was disrupted by the Afghan intelligence, where reportedly this network of agents had been working to kind of make contact with various militant groups and establish a kind of a, a fake uh, network that would sort of draw in Uyghur militants, which then they could um, take out. Um, I think it, it's, it's, it was a very curious operation because from my understanding is all it seemed to do was cause massive tensions with the Afghans. And the Afghans are actually not averse to going after Uyghur militants either. From the Afghan government's perspective, you know, Uyghur militants are fighting alongside the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, which are groups that are against the government there. So they're quite happy to hunt them down. So I think it caused a lot of ructions, my understanding was within Kabul, because the authorities there, you know, were like, well, hang on, I thought we were meant to be working together on this. And then you go and do this secret thing with the Pakistanis and very complicated, usual sort of murkiness one gets with all these spy stories. But I think to go back to your specific question, yes, there is a great deal of concern from a Chinese perspective about the potential for uh, Uyghur militants use Afghanistan as a base to try to launch something uh, back towards China. And I think that's a kind of uh, very, I think it's an overinflated concern, to be honest, but it is certainly something that concerns them a great deal. Um, if I, Alessandro, you can forgive me for one second to touch on the question that you asked, um, Andrea, and because I have a mic, you have no way of stopping me here, but uh, so I'll continue anyway. Um, the, you know, I think the, the question of a vacuum being left, I think Andrea is exactly right, that China doesn't want uh, necessarily to fill that vacuum, but the dilemma is that nature abhors vacuums, you know, and if you do have a vacuum, that, that doesn't mean natural stability will come. Actually, problems will still exist. And the problem from a Chinese perspective is if they become so substantially economically invested, invested in people, invested in minus and all these other things, then, you know, they can't just sort of stand by because by standing by, they will suffer. And so they will find themselves getting dragged into this. And I would argue are starting slightly to see this happening already in, in some different sort of ways. So if we look, for example, in, you know, in, in contexts uh, where, you know, China becomes, you know, by being such a large investor, I mean, the example that people always look to is Sudan, right? Where if you look at the Sudan historical case, the tension in Sudan and South Sudan, you know, you would find the leaders of these countries would go to Beijing to try to resolve their differences because CNPC was one of the biggest investors in the country and the Chinese embassy was quite active on the ground. And so there was a sense that actually China was finding itself being pulled in to try to help resolve some of these issues. If you look at Myanmar, uh, you know, right next door, where we now are seeing all this trouble uh, and there seems to be some evidence of China at least giving tacit agreement to, to sort of what's happened. But, you know, I think the Myanmarese did come and ask them if they, you know, if this was, if, if they would object if something was to happen. And, you know, obviously the Chinese said, okay. And so the thing is, I think you're going to find the Chinese getting dragged into these situations more and more. And it's going to create an interesting context, which they're going to have to react to. If we look at Indonesia recently, there's been a number of terrorist plots that have been disrupted in Indonesia, where there's been evidence that the people were talking about trying to target Chinese workers or Chinese based in Indonesia. And this was not so much out of you know, concern about Uyghurs and so on and so forth, though there was a little bit of that rhetoric in there. It was actually much more about Chinese laborers coming into the country and displacing the local labor force. And this caused some sort of tensions within the two, so much so that they found themselves. Now, I don't wanna over-egg this because it's still quite low level what we're talking about. But I think the key point is, is that China becoming a big player on the world stage, you know, it has consequences and it has consequences in that you become a target. And the approach of China's states was, well, we're just here to do the investments and not get involved. I think that becomes quite hard to sustain at a certain point. Um, and we'll end up dragging them into problems where they maybe don't want to actually 
and get involved. I think the problem from Western perspective is I think the Chinese answer to that won't be the answer that the West would look to, which is basically to try to stabilize and build up a democracy and do all these other things. The Chinese one will be, well, we don't really care. You guys resolve it and we'll support whoever comes out on top. And that's kind of it. You know what I mean? They'll support the various sides, but they won't mind so much about some of the human rights issues and others that would, I think, agitate uh, Western actors. So I think their response will be different, but I think they will struggle to completely sidestep vacuums. Thank you, Rafaelo. As we are still talking about focusing on Central Asia, I will go back to you immediately with a question, uh, and then we will shift back to the Middle East with Andrea. The question is from the Embassy of the Republic of Kazakhstan in Singapore, and is how China assessed the steps of Central Asian state, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and other countries to intensify cooperation among Turkic states. Is it assessed through the focus of problems in Eastern China? Floor is your Rafael. Um, I think that it's an interesting question, uh, quite a complicated one. <laughs> um, I think that in, in my interactions with uh, Chinese experts, they kind of look at this region and think in sort of the Turkic world terms. Um, I think what's striking to me is that, uh, so a few things, I think first of all, I don't think they take it that seriously. You know, I think they all know Turgut Ozul and the sort of great visions of pan-Turkism that we've seen coming out of the Turkish government for a long time. Um, but they've also watched how these, you know, visions haven't really amounted to much, um, you know, and they've sort of advanced and the Turks talk about it a lot. And, you know, it doesn't really turn out to be much of anything at the end of the day. And I think having watched that happen a few times, I think their levels of concern are probably relatively assuaged about it. Um, Having said that, there is an interesting question, of course, about how much this all connects up. Um, because of course, you know, the people that live in Eastern China are Turkic as well. And so, you know, in that conception of sort of greater Turkic uh, identity would stretch right into there. And that of course becomes a, an issue uh, with the Chinese perspective. What's interesting, I think, is they've kind of gone back and forth on this over time. So I remember in about 2013 or 14, uh, or maybe a little earlier actually, in 2011, 2012, um, I remember going out to Xinjiang a few times. I remember talking to a lot of Turkish officials at the time as well, and Chinese officials, and there was a clear effort by Beijing to try to take advantage of the fact that you did have Turkey as a Turkic power to try to connect with Xinjiang in particular, to try to help elevate, you know, the sort of Turkic peoples there to try to help them, you know, engage economically and become more prosperous. And they even established a, a business park, a China Turkey business park just outside Urumqi, which is meant to be focused on agriculture and textiles, as I recall. Um, and this was signed, you know, Ministry of Commerce and their Turkish counterparts signed an agreement. They established this, this, this business park. I, I don't know, to be honest with you, what happened to it. Um, but then, you know, and, and when Erdogan visited one uh, time around this time, he visited, and he actually, interesting, went to Urumqi before he went to Beijing which at the time was seen as quite a big sort of statement. And I remember talking to contacts in Beijing at the time who said there was a big internal debate about, you know, parts of MFA wanted him to go there first because they thought this will help with this kind of issue that they were having in Xinjiang to show that, you know, the Uyghurs, the Turkic people out there, that there was a kind of a Turkic world they could connect with and prosper through. Um, and then there was another part that said, no, when a leader visits, he should go to the capital first and then go out to the regions. And so it, there was something implicit within this kind of order, which was, uh, which was sort of disruptive uh, diplomatically in some way. So, you know, there, and at that point, the idea was engagement. 
But then I think over time, you know, we saw the Erdogan's narrative and rhetoric change and he started to become quite angry. And in some of his commentary in particular, he, he seemed to go against. And if you go back and look at Erdogan's history personally, he has, you know, been a great supporter of the Uyghur cause. Uh, historically, there, there, you know, there's the Martyrs Park in, in, in Istanbul, which was named after, you know, uh, famous uh, Uyghur leaders when he was mayor of the city. So, you know, he's had a very personal kind of engagement with this cause for some time. Um, it seems now that they, you know, they seem to have settled a little bit somewhere in between where there's a willingness from the Turkish direction to, you know, uh, not interfere and to help China in dealing with some of these problems as the Chinese see them. But at the same time, there is still clearly a willingness in Turkey to, you know, let there be a substantial Uyghur population in uh, Turkey that, you know, protests when Wang Yi visits, for example. Um, and they don't sort of, you know, clamp down these protests as aggressively as you might, you might think if they were really, you know, eager to show, uh, show the Chinese that they were kind of supportive. So, you know, I think that, and, and Turkey, the reason I keep talking about them is that they really are key to this whole debate about sort of pan-Turkism. Um, and I think they're the key to it from, I think, a Chinese perspective as well. As the kind of key partner within that, um, but yeah, I think you know, I think from 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 the Chinese perspective, it's one, it's it's a it's a kind of complicated issue, I think, and um, I think that there it comes down to really their relationships with the governments, and I think in, in Central Asia, I think the Chinese have got a pretty strong relationship with all the local governments in dealing with some of these concerns and issues. Um, in the Caucasus, I think it's maybe less of a, a concern in some ways, and then when they get over to Turkey, it's a complicated story that frankly cuts in lots of different directions. So. Um, uh, but they seem to be able to, to strike a balance between themselves on this. And that probably speaks to bigger Turkic, Turkish uh, geopolitical visions more than anything else. Thank you. Thank you, Rafaelo. And now back to you, Andrea. I have a question from my colleague, Amim Lutfi. Uh, we run together a podcast, Boots of the Ground, and uh, we are always focused on the role of private security. Uh, you just mentioned before uh, China and the problematic about kidnapping and ransom. So the question from my colleague, Dr. Amin Lufti is, uh, how serious is China thinking about saving on cost and responsibility by outsourcing the protection of their foreign asset to private military and security companies? Are they only thinking about Chinese security company or are they also thinking about hiring local or third country companies? Floor is yours, Andrea. Uh, another great question. Um, as, uh, as far as I understand, the debate on uh, private or the use on the use uh, the, the debate on the on the private on the use of private security companies, Chinese, local, uh, Western foreign companies, and so on, um, has developed uh, quite a lot uh, over the past ten years. Um, especially, I would say in the aftermath of the Libyan crisis uh, with proposals made in 2012 about uh, reforming the private security industry at home, in especially to regulate the use of firearms uh, by, you know, uh, by, by Chinese private security companies, um, thinking about their use abroad. Uh, that reform, that proposals did not really uh, end up anywhere. Uh, nothing really happened. Uh, we still have the same laws that uh, were approved in 2010. Um, and actually, it's, it's interesting that there are a few articles and reports that were published over the past few years on, on this issue on whether or not, uh, uh, you know, re re reforming the price screen industry, especially 
thinking about the protection of Chinese assets, assets and nationals abroad. Um, and it seems to me that one of the reasons why uh, there was resistance to this kind of reform was that it was seen not really conducive to solving the problem that is ensuring the protection of Chinese interests overseas, while at the same time creating uh, a, a potential um, diplomatic risk for China, especially in the case that you know these, these Chinese nationals carrying guns be a, could be exchanged for being Chinese soldiers, or in the case that they shoot or they're shoot or they're shot by someone, uh, creating friction with local communities and so on. While at the same time, now the Chinese private companies are much cheaper than the high-end ones uh, from the West. Um, and so the, 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 the risk was that, okay, we, we, we helped them to reform and then they somehow managed to get up to the standards of the big Western ones. But at that point, okay, we left the big Chinese SOE uh, switching from hiring Western companies to hiring Chinese ones. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that problem, uh, the, you know, that on that side, China, domestic uh, security companies would make money and the SOE would still have, uh, probably, probably would find a more reliable partner in political terms. But we would not solve the problem of all those small, medium companies that go abroad in unstable countries and they actually do not have the money or, do, or, don't, or don't want to spend money on security and protecting their own employees and assets abroad. So um, the, I would say that the, the, in a way there was the, task, the, the consensus, at least the temporary consensus was that, uh, you know, for the, the, the big Chinese SOEs that have the money, the billion to spend on high-hand security that can keep on hiring Western companies because they're reliable, they're political neutral. If some of their operator dies or kills someone, it's their problem, it's not China's problem. Um, at the same time, uh, my impression, my understanding is that outside maritime security, in which there are some private Chinese private companies that provide armed services, uh, generally speaking, uh, Chinese PSCs are positioning themselves as either consultants and or kind of intermediaries between their contractors, their employers, uh, sorry, their, their employers and eventually local partners. Then at the, at the point, you know, if you hire local people, you, you, you saw the problem of carrying guns, which is not allowed for, that in, for which uh, foreigners are not allowed to do in many countries. You also have kind of uh, your employee kind of, there is less risk of creating friction with local communities because they come from the same, you know, the local people. Um, so uh, I don't think there is a clear preference, honestly, for one solution or the other. It's all about, on one hand, how much it costs to hire one kind of company and how much cost hiring the other one and what are the political and diplomatic risks that come with one choice and, and the other. Uh, so I think, again, it's, it's, I think it's a very pragmatic and uh, goal-oriented uh, way of thinking over this issue. Thank you for the question. I'm going back to Raffaello now with a question from uh, Professor Nurlana Adikanuli. Uh, from Narsos University in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Uh, dear Mr. Raffaello, is there a division of interest between Russia and China in Central Asia? Where Russia operate in one, uh, uh, operate in the military political sphere and China in the economic one. And may these two states change their roles in the future? Bless you, Raffaello, and the floor is yours. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, Easy question for function. you. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, 
Alessandro and to um, to uh, your colleague, I think it was Nurlan who, who asked it. A very interesting question. I mean, look, I, I think um, there is a kind of a cliche, I would argue, that runs around the discussion of Central Asia, which is that, you know, the Russians do the security and the Chinese do the economics. And this kind of division is kind of how the world is divided. It works there. And I, I, I just don't see it, to be honest with you. And I don't see it for a number of different reasons. I think, first of all, you know, the most an elemental thing, which I don't quite comprehend, is security costs money. So in this calculation, we're saying that the Russians are spending money and the Chinese are taking money. And you know that doesn't sound like it works for the Russians, I would have thought, right? So that's always my problem I have with it. The other problem I have with it is that it presumes a level of trust between China and Russia, which I don't see, to be honest. I don't disagree that these two partners see themselves as strategic allies, geostrategic allies on the world stage. They will always kind of back each other up. And what we've seen over the past few years is a real hardening of that relationship at a kind of geostrategic level in that sense that, you know, the two of them see themselves as, you know, powers that are, you know, um, are, are led by strongmen leaders who, you know, have a firm grip on power, don't want to let go, are worried, frankly, about the chaotic democracies that the West seems to be pushing. They don't like color revolutions. They don't like, you know, uh, the Arab Spring type things and all the chaos that follows these issues. So, you know, they, they see themselves very much as part of a grouping that is against this kind of instability that they see coming out of the Western countries and capitals. And so from that perspective, I think they will always kind of come together. But at the same time, there is a deep level of distrust between the two of them. Um, and you can see this in the sort of repeated, you know, spy scandals that we see happening for the most part in Moscow, where the Russians sort of catch people who are selling stuff to the Chinese. Um, or even if you look at some of the narratives that come out of Moscow, where there's that kind of concern about, you know, uh, their East getting completely overwhelmed by the Chinese, or even in some of these hesitations you see by the FSB and the other security agencies in Russia to use Chinese technology, because they're just as worried in some ways about the Chinese, you know, using this technology to undermine and take them over, um, as they are, you know, uh, frankly, the West. But from their perspective, their choices are either Western companies or Chinese companies, they will always go to the Chinese ones because their relationship with China is just of greater trust than that with the West. So, you know, I think that the relationship with those is kind of locked together, but it's one that's very tense. And it's one that doesn't necessarily totally always agree with each other and come up together. And so if that's your starting point, why would the Chinese trust the Russians to be the ones to look after their security concerns in Central Asia? Be that in terms of worrying about, you know, Uyghur militants or dissidents that they see running around who they're worried might uh, strike China or Chinese companies or Chinese investments that are operating in the region? Why would they, you know, pan this responsibility over to a country who they don't entirely totally trust? So I think from my perspective, actually the story of the past few years has been a rising Chinese security presence in the region and an increasing attempt by Russia to try to claim back some of the economic pie in Central Asia as well. And I think that's the kind of interesting dynamic where actually I think there was a, a sense that China was doing a lot of economics and Russia kind of did everything else because Russia had the historical links with the region. But I think increasingly what you see now is a kind of a reassertion of the kind of economic side from the Russian perspective and a kind of an increasing elevation of the security presence from a Chinese perspective as well. And you can see this in lots of different ways. The base in, in Tajikistan is one, uh, is one story. The increasing high-end arms sales that you can see from the Chinese to a lot of these countries. You know, So if you look at for example, the uh, UAV platforms, the drones that the Central Asians are buying, you know, they're buying Chinese ones. You know, if you look at some of the high, high tech telecoms tools that they're purchasing, they're looking to sort of Chinese 
contractors rather than Russian ones. You know, I, I don't think for any nefarious geopolitical reason, I think it's because they're good, you know what I mean? And it's it's a good product on offer at a reasonable price. So, you know, they are buying it. So, but, but that is changing a little bit, the sort of dynamic of the arms sales, I think, in the region, which used to be basically a story of Central Asians buying mostly sort of Russian hardware. And I think increasingly you see that. And if you look at sort of um, some of the training exercises that they're doing as well, there's a kind of increase of Chinese presence and connectivity with the Central Asian security forces as well, which is about building up their links. It's about building up their contacts. Um, it's also about building up the cadre of people in Central Asia who care and understand what the Chinese security concerns are. And I think that's partially because, you know, they don't, frankly, you know, the Russians are not going to worry about this stuff. The Russians are going to worry about their security issues and their security concerns. They're going to care less, frankly, about the Chinese ones because, well, that's up to the Chinese to worry about. So I think that's really the story where you've seen a sort of increasing elevation, I would argue, of Chinese security footprint in the region um, and links and interests. Um, and at the same time, a kind of a bit of a pushback from a Russian perspective to reassert some of their kind of economic presence and economic connectivity. Um, so in a way, I'd argue it's more of a balancing, uh, I would say, than, than uh, kind of this, this, you know, this, this division, this dichotomy, which people often refer to, of, you know, Russia does security, China does economics. Thank you. And uh, uh, Raffaello, you just mentioned that um, there is a, a question from Dan, but previous to this, you just mentioned that arms transfer. For example, that uh, there is an increased transfer of Chinese UAV in Central Asia. They are efficient, and especially the efficiency is in the cost, cost effectiveness. Then I'm looking at Andrea, looking at Chinese arms transfer in the Middle East. Same case, Saudi Arabia, the kingdom acquired an entire industrial line to produce uh, the, the wind long, the Chinese UAV. But that was not a matter of price. Saudi still, uh, beside the economic crisis, have money to spend on uh, military hardware. It was the fact that the United States were not willing to sell uh, uh, the, the Reapers and the other kind of drone. Similarly, in Turkey, when they approached, it was during Obama administration, to buy the Patriot, then they end up trying to buy the Chinese uh, anti-missile system. It didn't end well, but they ended up with the S-400 from Russia. So Chinese military transfer in the Middle East, uh, difference or similitude with, uh, with the one in Central Asia? Um, I think there are also, there are differences and similarities as long as we expand, uh, you know, uh, our focus not only to military transfer, but we expand and include also more generally speaking, law enforcement, uh, cooperation or, or, you know, say, or related sales of things. Um, so starting with differences, I think uh, it's more money driven essentially for China and the Middle East than rather than building up capabilities of uh, regional uh, partners or, or regional actors, especially because the countries like Saudi Arabia or Turkey, especially some time ago, were especially singled out by Chinese analysts and Chinese media and main, as, as major sources of regional instability. So. Uh, I don't think that, you know, it would be kind of counterintuitive to think that they sell weapons to, uh, to improve their capabilities and then complain about that. So I think it was really about, um, you know, seizing the economic opportunity where it's there. And indeed, I think this is exactly what, um, what happened with Turkey, for example. I think the Chinese really hoped to, to make that sale and the Turks were mostly playing with the Chinese card against the Americans. I think that was mostly the case and China just, being part of this, hoping to make this major sale to a NATO country and, of course, there was some money involved. 
Um, so in, from this point of view, I think we are looking at different phenomena, though the actual object is the same. But there are also similarities in, when it comes to the idea of building uh, capabilities of local partners. And this because, and this goes back to, in a way, to the discussion about Djibouti, what's, what's the role of the base in Djibouti? And as I said, it's more like creating an option to that, you know, an inst, a tool of, a tool of staker can, that can be used, but only in extreme situations. Otherwise, it's much more convenient to rely on local partners, if you have capable local partners that you can rely upon. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about a recent agreement that was signed between, for example, China and Ethiopia, in which Ethiopia committed itself to protect uh, uh, this, you know, to ensure the safety of Chinese projects in the country. And this happened in the immediate aftermath of the Tigray crisis. And so I think we should look more, I think from that point of view, there is interest also in China, from the Chinese side to cooperate with local actors to strengthen their, their, own, you know, their own capabilities to maintain stability. It, it kind of goes back to the general approach, kind of general philosophy of China that, you know, you achieve uh, stability through development. And development broadly defined as you know building up the strength of the state uh, to which you are looking at. Uh, so from this point of view, instead, it's quite similar to what happens in, in 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 Central Asia. Just you know, instead of talking about military, you know, big toys, uh, we are looking at much at lower profile but uh, more kind of practical uh, kind of cooperation that is meant to uh, you know. Uh, avoid an increase of security burden on Chinese diplomacy uh, and transfer it on the, on the local partners, especially when it's also, in, of course, in the interest of those same partners to that Chinese assets are protected. So I think, yeah, similarities, but differences in, in what we're looking at in the two regions. Thank you, Andrea. Now I have uh, two questions from Dan, but prior to reading it, I, I'm really encouraging our audience uh, to ask directly the question, just raise your hand and ask the question. So it will allow, avoid especially to Andrea and Raffaello to keep seeing my face and listening <laughs> my oral when I read the question. But back to Dan's question. First, uh, on the recent attack on Keta in the Pakistan Taliban claiming responsibility for it. How concerned would Beijing about this? Also given some anti-Chinese sentiment there and its proximity to Keta. Second, on the impeding withdrawal from Afghanistan by the US, how concerned is Beijing about this impeding vacuum? That's something that we are already addressed from the beginning, but I would like, uh, again, Andrea to start to, to give your opinion and then Raffaello to go on this. And Andrea, you need to unmute yourself. Sorry. Uh, as I was saying, uh, with myself, I was talking with myself. Um, I, I think, uh, of course, these these things are seen with uh, cannot be, cannot but be sources of concern uh, from China, uh, and uh, and I think they're seen as somehow connected. You know, uh, interventionism, poverty, lock, lack of local development, all these things mixed up, um, and uh, and uh, they create instability and and, and then fuel terrorism and Chinese assets uh, can become uh, can become primary targets. Um, so again, I, I can again guess this fuel the all those concerns and fears that uh, Raffaello described earlier when it comes to terrorism and the Uyghurs and so far and so on. Um, it remains, of course, very difficult. Then you know this is my uh, 
hypothesis because it's very difficult then to really understand how these factors are actually uh, taken into consideration by Chinese policymakers and uh, and exactly what happens on the ground is very difficult. So with terror terrorist organization claiming responsibility for attacks, it's always uh, you know it's, it can be always tricky to really understand who does what, uh, who did what, and so on. Um, so definitely concern about what uh, uh, similar events uh, can uh, you know can uh, what, you, you know uh, looking at these events as symptoms of something worse to come, but exactly how that is going to shape Chinese policy, I think it's still quite difficult to tell honestly. Yeah. Um. I'll, I'll come straight in, Alessandra, if that's okay, assuming you want to meet a comment on this, and I, I guess by that little nod, that, that's a yes. Um, I think that, you know, uh, so two very interesting questions. I mean, look, uh, the Quetta attack is very curious. Uh, we don't really know who they were targeting. Um, it was a bit out of, it was a bit surprising, in fact, for TTP to launch an attack there. That's not usually the area of operations, but it was a bit surprising that TTP did do an attack there. Um, it was also interesting they put out two claims. <laughs> so the first claim, they said it was us. And then the second claim, they put out a claim saying, oh, we weren't targeting foreigners. But it seems that it really was TTP because they did claim, you know, they named the, the, bomb, the bomber. Um, the evidence seems to point very much in TTP direction, but it's still unclear to me exactly what the plan was. And talking to contacts in Pakistan, I haven't had absolute clarity yet on what the kind of view is about it. My, my understanding is that to some degree, there's a, there's a view that says TTP seems to, TTP recently has been kind of reorienting itself and strengthening and kind of rebuilt itself after a period of kind of, of calming down. And so it's possible that this was kind of a big attack intended to kind of demonstrate that the group was back and it's capable and it's able to do something substantial. Um, whether they were planning to target the Chinese ambassador is not clear. Uh, there was also some quite senior meetings happening in, in the Serena Hotel at that time with some very senior Pakistani intelligence or security officers. So it's possible that that might have been TTP's target as well. So it's, it's a very murky incident in particular. But what I think it does illustrate is the bigger problem of dangers in Pakistan and the difficulties of operating in countries which do have problems of terrorists. And I think in some ways, the way I would look at this, the worrying part from a Chinese perspective is the fact that, you know, their ambassador is now considered a real VVIP in that country. And it has been true for some time, but the relationship that China has with Pakistan means that, you know, China's man on the ground there is basically almost probably as important from the Pakistani conception as America's man or woman on the ground. You know, and so that means that your senior person becomes that significant. And so that means the whole orientation of how everyone looks at you, how everyone looks at your diplomatic presence, how everyone looks at your people in that country changes. So if you look, for example, at some of the kidnappings we've seen in recent years, where you've seen, you know, Chinese nationals getting kidnapped, sometimes for ransom in Pakistan, you know, it, it happens. And, you know, this means that, you know, Chinese laborers, Chinese workers, they become targets as a result of China's kind of geostrategic relationship with the capitals, whereas previously, China could probably hide to some degree because they would say, oh, well, we're a developing country. There's lots of developing countries. We're just one of many investors in the country. We're, you know, little China. Now they're big China, you know, this is the world's second largest economy. It's a hugely significant actor in, the, in, in Pakistan. And so this means that this has good and it has bad side. Bad because it means that if you have groups in, in, in Baluchistan, usually the threats to Chinese come from Baluchi groups, Baluchi Liberation Army or the Brass, you know, who will target Chinese. And when they target Chinese, they will say, we are attacking CPEC. 
because we're attacking the Chinese, because the Chinese are helping the evil uh, is the government in Islamabad, which is oppressing the Baluchi people. So the whole narrative is the Chinese have now become embedded within that. Now, there's a kind of a view in, uh, in, 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 in Islamabad and in parts of Beijing that actually uh, all of this is something that's being manipulated. I mean, you know, South Asia is a place that's rife, or Central Asia as well, to be honest, of uh, conspiracy theories. A good conspiracy theory goes down a very long way there, and everyone loves to look for nefarious actors that are really pulling the strings. And, you know, th th this is a real question that comes up, I think, in, in some of these incidents in, in Pakistan. And this does then stretch us into the question of Afghanistan, where I think from a Chinese perspective, you know, there is a degree to which I think the Chinese, and you can look at some of the moves that have been made recently, has got, I think, a growing level of uh, confidence in some ways about its security concerns on the ground. And I say this from the perspective of, uh, we talked before um, about the base in Tajikistan and the reinforcing that we've seen from a Chinese perspective of that border and helping the Tajik forces develop the capability. We've seen a similar deployment on the sort of Gilgit-Baltistan side with Pakistan to strengthen that border. Um, we've seen a kind of growing uh, a certain amount of support for the Afghan forces, the building up of a base there. You've seen the Chinese develop relationships with the Taliban and their relationship with the Taliban is, you know, built on the assumption that, you know, they will make sure that they will, they won't let groups use Afghanistan as a place to try to launch attacks against China. And you've also seen them grow their relationships and recently in particular with uh, the security parts of the Afghan government. Um, Amrullah Saleh, the vice minister, vice president there. Uh, we've seen recently he's been strengthening his relationship with the Chinese and there's a big force that he's apparently building up to help sort of protect the Afghan government post-American withdrawal. And there's some narrative that the Chinese are sort of building a connection with this as well. So I think what I take away from that is the Chinese have really built up, A, their direct security connection, they've sort of strengthened that. They've also developed relationships with all of the actors on the ground in Afghanistan. And I think this is where the kind of the difficult element, which has come up a bit more recently, um, has started to emerge, which is the degree to which the Chinese might start to see their adversaries, be it the Indians or be it the uh, Americans, manipulating groups in Afghanistan against their interests. And we've seen the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has, you know, recently, earlier this year, they, the, the uh, Hua Chunying, during one of her uh, press conferences, broadcast a video which showed Lawrence Wilkerson, the former chief of staff to US uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell, who was talking about the US's plan with Afghanistan was to develop a place from where they could, you know, manipulate Uyghurs to launch attacks directly back into China. Now, you know, this is a rumor which has frankly been rattling around Beijing for a long time. Um, I don't think many people took it seriously, but for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to front line this rumor, I think reflects the level of paranoia which is starting to emerge in Beijing, which is that there is a concern that Afghanistan, you know, I think their direct security concerns with Afghanistan, they probably got areas that they can assure themselves to some degree of protecting against them. You can never have total security. And this is why I think you've seen them, the, the, the Ministry of State Security and the police and the PAP develop, even continue to really push into developing relations with Afghanistan to make sure that they've really got that assurance, you know, but it's always complicated. But then their concern is, well, how much might we see others manipulating actors on the ground to ultimately try to undermine this. And Afghanistan becomes a place in which they see that kind of happening. And so that, I think, is the concern that you see increasingly from Beijing, which is how much might others, our adversaries, the Indians or the Americans in particular, be manipulating groups against us uh, in these particular contexts. Thank you. 
Thank you. It looks like, uh, and I always say to use that phrase, but the great game is back in into Afghanistan in some respect. And now I will just uh, give the floor to my colleague, Dr. Azif Shuja, for his question. Azif, you can unmute yourself. Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Alex. Uh, uh, yes, uh, my uh, my concern here is, of course, focusing on uh, securing Chinese uh, interests overseas. So uh, that could be done at uh, a number of levels, and uh, of course, so far we have covered uh, the military aspect of it and uh, the economic uh, benefit that happens. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, what China has been doing here, uh, they are not going to do the hard landing. Uh, they will be doing the soft landing and the retention of that landing will also be there. So uh, a, a lot of it, uh, you know, when it is being uh, done, uh, the narratives are to be created. And uh, for China, it's very important uh, not just to enter into a particular terrain, but also to, to stay there. And in that regard, uh, not just the opinion of the ruler, but also the public opinion is important. So my question here is, of, of course, pertaining to the role of the civil society, uh, the think tank, the machinery which creates those narratives. For instance, this particular narrative that China is not interested in the strategic domain, just economics, you know? So uh, how far has China been investing in that uh, narrative control of it or the creation of it. That is one aspect of this question. And the other aspect of this question is uh, the diaspora. <clears throat> Chinese, <clears throat> here, uh, the main competition is between the United States and China. The Chinese uh, diaspora is highly paramount in the United States, but the reverse is not true. So how far is that going to play a role in the future? The great game, uh, what my uh, colleague has just mentioned, how far is that going to play? Because we are talking in terms of decades, if not century. Uh, thank you so much, Alex, for providing me the opportunity. Thanks to you, Aziz, for the question. Uh, I mean, we are talking now about China soft power. We can start with Andrea and then move to Raffaello. Sure, uh, I, I totally agree um, in the sense that uh, one of the main sources of concern and also one of the main causes of Chinese cautionness when it comes to think how do we protect uh, our interest overseas is exactly thinking how others are, are going to react to our moves. That's a, uh, that's a crucial element. And uh, mentioned earlier, uh, the discussion about uh, development, the use of private security companies, uh, relying on local partners and so forth and so on. It's all part of that. Um, at the soft power level, so how it actually then also how that happened also at the narrative level, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that uh, all these uh, kind of partnerships, uh, partner relations as far as so on, I push forward, especially usually at gov to gov relations. So definitely there is a constant engagement with, uh, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with local elites, including not just of course governments, but also think tanks, scholars, universities, uh, and so far and so on. Uh, and the, my impression is that, of course, there is also engagement with the broader public opinion civil society, but really the effort, at least I, I talk, can talk about the Middle East. I'm not really sure about Central Asia, because that's a bit outside my scope of my research. 
but the focus is really is ensuring that there is support from uh, local uh, governments uh, you know to these kind of partnerships with China uh, because they remain in any case countries in which uh, the government has definitely levers to uh, you know control public opinion and so far and so on. so as long as uh, there is the support of local partners things uh, are fine um, of course there is also we should also look at the econom economic side of this narrative that you know is constantly promoted that you know pro protecting chinese assets also means promoting uh, also also means protecting those uh, you know the, the, those companies that create uh, you know the build roads bridges uh, all this kind of infrastructure that they that they will eventually bring uh, economic prosperity to the broader population so that's all part of the story and these narratives that uh, that is being created um, and that it's, I would say it's mostly happens uh, and as, as far as according to my slides, mostly like at the government level and uh, up international organizations so far and so on, because those are really the things that grant legitimacy to Chinese uh, actions. Um, so uh, this is for uh, kind of soft power list the narrative side. As to diaspora, I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, at least in the Middle East, there is no big Chinese diaspora. Uh, although there is a large number, of course, of uh, Chinese workers, and they are uh, one of the main sources of uh, concern for Chinese policymakers, especially after uh, a failed attempt to make Chinese companies responsible for their own protection in the mid 2000s. Uh, and you know, the result was Libya, so it was clearly a failed uh, attempt. Uh, but that said, um, I, I don't think that uh, that diasporas uh, in the region or eventually Chinese diaspora in the United States play uh, a significant role in shaping uh, China's approach, at least to the Middle East and the protection of uh, China's interest in the region. Back to you, Rafael. Uh, thank you, uh, Alessandra. I think a really interesting question. I mean, I think. Um, you know, the public opinion one is one that everyone, you know, worries about a lot in terms of, you know, Chinese soft power, what does it look like? You know, we'll talk about Confucius Institutes and they talk about, you know, uh, other uh, sort of cliches like that. Um, I think, I think Alessandra is right. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I think Andrea is right in, you know, in the degree to which in the countries that we're talking about in a lot of cases, they're places that frankly, you know, sort of the public space discourse is to some degree controlled by the authorities. And so I agree, the Chinese conception is probably, well, as long as the authorities are on board, then whatever, frankly. Um, I think the question then becomes, how much do the governments always control the situation? And I think what you have seen in some Central Asian contexts is that we've seen that a sort of level of anger has bubbled up from below that has ultimately caused problems for the Chinese. Um, be this in terms of people, you know, businessmen getting attacked, in terms of projects getting stalled, um, you know, you have seen that to some degree. And I think the response usually from a Chinese perspective is to get the local authorities to deal with that. Um, you know, but at the same time, I think there is some evidence that they do see, well, okay, you know, probably, the thing that I always think about the public opinion and soft power side is the Chinese don't really know how to do it in a very sophisticated way. You know, I think their analysis of how to do this is essentially, well, you know, we'll just find some academics and we'll pay them some money and they'll write an article and then do a report which comes to a conclusion that we know, which is our investment's great, and then that'll be it. You know what I mean? And that'll persuade the locals somehow, because you know, as we all know, you know, and you're, you're sitting here listening to a panel of three 
you know, academics who write opinions everywhere about stuff, you know, we know that everyone's reading our opinions and acting on them. I mean, in reality, you know, the, it's not clear to me that this stuff actually influences. And so, you know, I, I don't know that frankly paying another academic in, I don't know, Kazakhstan to write an op-ed that's positive in local publication is really going to change, you know, the public opinion in, in Kazakhstan. I think what you've seen, which is much more effective, is instead a form of CSR, which is when companies invest in a place, you know, they invest in a village and they go out and go to that village and go, go to the village elders. So, you know, we're here, we're, we're building our, you know, copper mine or whatever, or we're building a pipeline through this, through your territory, you know, what can we offer you? You know, do you guys need a school? Can we employ some of your young men to come and work in this so they get jobs? You know, that kind of CSR, I think, is a much more effective tool. And I think what you have seen over the past few years, a real push by Ministry of Commerce in particular, to try to get Chinese companies that are investing in countries to think more in those terms. And I think the big, big lesson for them was the might store dam in Myanmar, which was this giant billion dollar project, which came completely apart, frankly, because the locals complained so much about it that the whole project had to stall for almost a decade, essentially, and a huge amount of money was wasted and lost. And after that, I think you saw Ministry of Commerce really put a lot of emphasis on the big state-owned companies doing some of this CSR in some of these countries. And it's, you know, it's very basic stuff you know, building a school for a, a deprived, a poor village, you know, will win you quite a lot of friends in the local community. So that kind of stuff is quite effective. I think the sort of opinion shaping side, I'm not sure that China really has the sophistication to be able to kind of pull that off. A lot of because the reason that this stuff works, if we look at, you know, the America, what the Americans churn out or what others do, is that people are attracted to something, you know, and if they're attracted to something, they'll see it positively, and then all the good will flow from that. You know, and in some places they see a benefit from China and you can see in Central Asia, there are a lot of young Central Asians who are going increasingly to train and learn in schools like the one where Andrea is teaching at the moment, you know. Um, they're getting very good qualifications there. They're having their formative years in China. And those people are probably gonna be the best vehicles for Chinese soft power projection going forwards. Because those people will go back home, they will get jobs, they will start their lives, they will, you know, become the middle class. and their connection will be with China and they'll have a sense of China and how it is and what benefits it can bring, which will be positive. And so that I think is the longer term soft power play, which is I think quite interesting from a Chinese perspective, um, but it will take a long time for that to play out. And this then I think touches on your second question about the diaspora, which is interesting because it's true in you know, parts of Central Asia, there are uh, you know, quite substantial Chinese diasporas and there have been for some time actually, these are not always that new communities. And so I think for those communities, they do probably have a connection, but I think what you will notice is they actually probably like to keep a relatively low profile. And in my experience of talking to them in some of these third locations, I remember in, in Kyrgyzstan in particular, uh, when I was doing research there, you know, about five years ago, uh, or actually on most of my trips there, I would meet up with the kind of local, <laughs> try to find some local Chinese entrepreneurs to go talk to and hang out with and uh, get them to take me to the best Chinese restaurant in town. Um, they, you know, when I would ask them, you know, so how much do you rely on the embassy, on the state, the Chinese state to kind of help you? And I mean, I can think of almost none of them who would tell me that their answer to dealing with a problem was to go to the embassy. They would always have another solution, which was usually they knew a guy in the ministry, they knew a guy there, they had a friend, you know, it was always about the Guanxi that they'd built up themselves. And so what does that say to me? Does that say to me that this is a diaspora that is tightly connected to Beijing? I mean, of course, they're connected to China because they derive their economic benefits from China, but I don't think they look to Beijing to protect them. They 
in most cases will have their own kind of out or their own protection or their own vision of how they're going to worry about themselves set up in their own minds rather than expecting frankly Beijing to come and save them I mean yeah I honestly I can, I can think of you know I remember meeting one a very smartly dressed woman in, in, in Bishkek who was clearly the kind of conduit region I remember asking her, you know so when did you last deal with the embassy you know because it was there was riots there's been riots sort of periodically in Kyrgyzstan attacks on Chinese entrepreneurs and she said I do not talk to them I avoid them as much as I can you know the only time I went to them was when my passport expired and I couldn't I didn't have any other choice so they have no use to me they come to me to ask me to help out you know so so I think that you know this this is a I, I don't think that they there is that same relationship in some ways uh, between the kind of diaspora and Beijing. Um, and I think that's at the kind of the, the established diaspora level. I think if you're talking about the state-owned enterprises and the companies that are trying to go invest in a third location, it's different because they still probably need the government government connections to ensure their project goes through and so on and so forth. But if you're talking about the long-term diaspora, they're establishing countries for a long time. My impression has always been that they are pretty a self-sufficient bunch. Thank you. Thank you, Raffaello. And always it's not easy to talk about Chinese soft power because if we use the night definition of soft power, definitely a Chinese soft power look more like a hard power using softly than the soft power itself. Uh, I have a, a question for Andrea uh, from Professor uh, Adikanuli. Uh, Mr. Andrea, do you agree uh, with the opinion that China's economic and military influence in the world is not enough? You also need cultural or linguistic influence. Chinese is a very difficult language, not like English. Do you agree that the Chinese cultural and linguistic influence in this competition is a losing one in advance? Floor is yours, Andrea. Good question. I, I studied Chinese myself during my undergrad, so um, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think that uh, uh, the success or the failure of Chinese diplomacy in the Middle East or on the world will be decided by how many people uh, will speak Chinese or, or, be pro or will be knowledgeable of Chinese culture, pop culture, traditional culture, or uh, whatever other kind of culture comes from China. Um, I don't think that's the issue. I know I probably related to, to linguistic skills, I would say it probably is the other way around. Uh, it's uh, much of the success of Chinese diplomacy will depend on how much uh, Chinese diplomats, entrepreneurs, and the Chinese nationals overall uh, that go abroad will be able to understand uh, the, the, the realities where they will find themselves. Um, and, and of course that goes through also uh, linguistic skills and this is, or, or like area expertise, which is something that recently Chinese universities and think tanks and so forth have been investing uh, a lot in. Um, so, I would say that's the that's the real role probably of culture and language. I think is really on the Chinese side as the side that is going out, that is trying to uh, you know expand its footprint, uh, not necessarily for uh, for you know for evil reason, but simply you know, business uh, protecting those businesses in further business interests, interests and so far and so on. It's really on the Chinese side to learn more about the world, uh, how it works, how difficult regions like the Middle East or Central Asia. Uh, work, uh, Raffaello just mentioned, usually is the, is the embassy that goes to the diaspora the, the other way around. Um, so it's really, I think it's, it's the onus is really on the Chinese side rather than on the world. Of course, 
outside is important uh, to know Chinese, I think for research reasons and uh, to understand better how the country works. Uh, because especially now, you know, uh, if you are familiar with Bob Jervis work on misperception, it's important to understand when, you know, intentions, what, what the country's intentions are, what are not. And of course, it's the, on, as researchers, that's our job to interpret, to, to make the kind of research, interpret Chinese actions. Uh, but uh, again, it's, I think it's really also about China uh, learning and, uh, and uh, more about uh, how those regions work. Um, in a way, if you look at the Chinese MFA, they've long been translator ambassadors. Uh, so at least in parts of the Chinese foreign policy bureaucracy, this linguistic or cultural problem does not exist. Uh, but I think it's really, it's not, uh, but you know, when, when we talk about enormous bureaucracies, um, things can get a bit messy. Uh, so I think knowledge about the other, it's really something that it's, it's up to uh, China to continue, you know, expanding and building on uh, rather than the other way around. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. In, in the meantime, I, I want to basically give my 20 cents uh, on the complexity of Chinese language, just quoting uh, Padre Dentracol, a Jesuit missionary who was just after Matteo Ricci, and he just mentioned only with the help of our Lord, we can study this language. Having said that, uh, Andrea, uh, you just mentioned the need for the Chinese to understand uh, where they are going to invest, the need to create uh, area expert, and Raffaello mentioned several times uh, the need for eyes and ears on the ground. That's an euphemism for intelligence. Uh, Andrea, you, you said that uh, in uh, 2011, uh, PLA Navy did a great job uh, in Libya during the collapse of the regime of Muammar Gaddafi in exfiltrating 36,000 Chinese workers. But someone else did not a good job in understanding that the collapse was imminent. Same in several other areas. If we look at the Gulf, at the GCC, uh, when it erupted the friction between UAE, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Qatar, China was still working on the free trade agreement with GCC. Uh, so uh, where, where do you see the trajectory? And this is for both of you in uh, improving area expert and local understanding of China in the Middle East and in Central Asia. Uh, Andrea and then Raffaello. Okay, I'll be super quick. I think that really the problem, at least when it comes to Libya, uh, when, uh, to the case of Libya was not on the side of the MFA. Um, I think also, I, I mean, even if former Chinese diplomats told to Global Times and Chinese media that they've been aware of this, of, of that this kind of events could happen. Um, and that the real issue why it happened is that Chinese companies decided to essentially to not to listen to the warnings uh, from, from, from the government. Um, and that's again, it, 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 it's about a failed attempt uh, to, to, to make Chinese companies more responsible for their own protection, the success of the enterprise, not just in economic terms, but also in security terms. Uh, and so there have been attempts, I mean, the, this attempt to make Chinese companies more responsible for that is still ongoing, uh, because that's the safest and cheapest way to solve a problem. You know, you, you eliminate the problem at the root, <laughs> um, instead of try, trying to find a solution after you prevent it, uh, you try to prevent it. Um, I, it probably the, 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 the FDA with the GCC is a different story. It's more about keeping this narrative, this story of cooperation with the, with the region going on, uh, despite uh, the regional tensions, uh, which uh, the problem was really about 
uh, internal unity in the JCC than China, you know, uh, complaining about things. So, uh, in a way, it it uh, you know, when it comes to companies, I expect the situation to slowly improve. You know, uh, become more cautious, also uh, relying more on security, on on private security, or ex consultants and so forth and so on. Uh, when it comes to other uh, uh, cases, eventually, say of Chinese attempts to achieve something and not making and not and not being successful in doing that, uh, sometimes I guess it's it's not just about China; it's also about uh, you know uh, the the counterparts. They were not either ready or active enough to or capable enough to to achieve the same goal. So uh, I guess we will keep on seeing potential you know, successes and failures. Uh, probably, I would say we would expect less cases less Libya in a way because that would be the real success so less failures mean it would be an indicator of increasing success of understanding the world and being capable of, of avoiding problems by you know literally preventing them um, but again difficult to tell because the dynamics on the ground are so complex and so, so changeable that uh, there are still you know uh, everything can still happen Um, I guess, uh, I mean, so the question was uh, improving Chinese learning or understanding in, in Central Asia uh, specifically. I think, I mean, I, you know, this is not a new relationship. You know, I mean, the Central Asians have been next door to China for some time. <laughs> you know, there is quite a substantial diaspora uh, of Kazakhs, for example. I mean, we had the Kazakh ambassador on before. Um, you know, that lives in China. There's, they are Chinese, you know, passport holders and they're Kazakhs. And some of them have unfortunately got caught up in, in, the, in, the, in the camps that we've seen in Xinjiang. So, you know, there is a, a human connection that's long existed in Central Asia with China. So, you know, I, I think they kind of have a mutual understanding of each other that's very sophisticated. If we're talking about basic linguistic skills and kind of sense of understanding of how modern China is developing and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, I think there it's, it's something that you know, I think this the complicated side of this is, you know, how do you incentivize your system so that people who learn those, this particular language will come back home and then work in the institutions and the ministries that you need them to, to help ensure that your country is able to have a good understanding of, of the other side. Now, in, in Kazakhstan's case, for example, um, you know, uh, the uh, Karim Masimov, the you know, man widely lauded as one of the most competent sort of officials in the country, who I believe is currently the head of the National Security Council, I think he was a deputy minister, and I apologize, I'm forgetting exactly his title now, but you know, very competent man. But my understanding is he's completely fluent in Mandarin, um, and he operates in his meetings with Chinese counterparts in Mandarin um, because he can, and that's just his ability. So he's got a pretty good understanding, I think, of what's going on. He can read the materials himself. So obviously within Kazakhstan, they have got you know a cadre of people who can frankly do this. And I think in the other countries, it's probably a little harder um, and I think they've you know they've got varying degrees of capabilities there you've got a lot of Confucius institutes across the region which you know on the one hand one can worry about the degree to which they might be pushing Chinese narratives that you know frankly uh, 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 we should worry about um, around the region but at the same time they do provide a way for young Central Asians to learn Mandarin which you know they can then theoretically grow up and use in whatever they, they want um, and I think taking advantage of that is probably a good thing. And, you know, I think a lot of the Central Asian countries do see that benefit and do try to take advantage of it. But I think in terms of how you get that, I think it's, it's a question really of how do you 
kind of normalize uh, the learning of the language in such a way that it doesn't become a kind of exclusive thing that, you know, the kind of, there's that little cardio sinologist, you know, love to read Confucius and Sun Tzu and, you know, watch, you know, the, the, the monkey, the three kingdoms, all this sort of cliche, you know, I mean, you get away from that. And it becomes just, you know, well, you know, if you want to really thrive, you do learn this language. And then you take that language into whatever industry you choose to go into. Or you take that language, then go work for the government in whatever capacity you do. And then it just becomes a kind of a part of your understanding of the world and you continue to follow it. And so I think that's kind of the best way in some ways to enhance national capabilities to be able to kind of manage the relationship with China is to no longer make it such a kind of exclusive thing. Uh, that is kind of, an, you know, something that's off in a corner, um, but is something that is kind of more normalized. And, you know, I think within ministries and institutions, it's possible to incentivize people to do that. You can, you know, offer promotion to people who've, you know, learned the language or have taken the time, you know, there's all sorts of bureaucratic tricks you can do. So I, I, I think that there's ways of doing that. And I think it's probably a, a good thing and a positive thing and a necessary thing. And you can already see this, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not with my Italian name and, my wonderful Italian colleagues here on the call, I'm actually British, um, you know, and if I go back and look at the UK and colleagues there who are working in government or friends I know who work in government, you know, I can see that there is a growing, uh, you know, premium put on people who frankly speak Mandarin, you know, and who, who know China have a kind of understanding of it. So it's kind of permeating through the system. And that is, I think, enhances the government's capabilities to be able to kind of respond. The only final point I'd add is, you know, um, I, I, I do not speak Mandarin to the quality and level that either of my two colleagues on the call do. Um, and so I, I definitely know that they are, are far more aware, but they can function in the language and I have uh, dealt with it, worked in it in the past. Um, but it is difficult to learn, but it's, you know, I, I like you aren't all foreign languages quite difficult to learn when you first try, you know? And I, I don't know that necessarily we need to elevate Chinese to be just this impossible creature that is so far away from every other language. I'm pretty certain that someone trying to tackle Arabic, look at a, a European trying to learn Arabic would find it just as complicated, or even, you know, a European trying to learn Russian, Frank. Russian is not an easy language to learn. Um, I know from friends and colleagues who've learned it that it's incredibly hard. So, you know, I, I don't know why we necessarily need to consider Chinese such an exclusively impossible or difficult language to learn. It is challenging, I do not deny that, but I think that it's certainly not necessarily something that's so utterly utterly impossible and beyond the realm of possibility. So I think it's really a question of kind of normalizing that um, and ensuring that that's it. And I think in terms of the kind of the policy answer going forward, I think it's really about trying to figure out how countries incentivize within their systems and structures to ensure that they've got a cadre of people who do have that kind of linguistic skill and capability and understanding, um, but don't you know have that on top of the other skill that they have, which is you know diplomacy or commerce or IT or whatever it is, you know, so it becomes just kind of one of the skills that they have, which enhances their ability to kind of get into China, but also they don't kind of become these exclusive sinologists who are just sort of, you know, wheeled out when, you know, the leader needs a translation or something. But anyway, thank you. Thank you very much, Raffaello. And just on time, we are at the end of our webinar. I have to apologize for the other question that are still hanging in the chat room that we don't have time to work on that, but uh, please allow me to thank first and foremost Andrea and Raffaello for devoting their time to be with us today and to all our participants that have been with us from the beginning until the end. Thank you very much and see you soon online on the next event that the Middle East Institute is organizing. Have a good day Thanks. to everybody. Thanks for the hospitality. Take care. <laughs> thank you for the invitation. Congratulations Andrea on the book again.
Thanks. <laughs> Take care. Bye bye.